Be Frank Network. Content on this production is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute medical treatment or diagnosis. Seek medical help if you believe that you are suffering from a mental illness or are a threat to yourself or others. By using any or all of the information provided, you do so at your own risk. Any application of the material is at the listener's discretion and is his or her sole responsibility. Hey everybody, Doc Brian here and welcome to Doc Talks DX where we talk about the diagnosis of what our guests previously on Doc Talks, uh, which you can find on all streaming platforms, uh, may be dealing with. Now today, our episode with us, we have Sebastian Scales and hopefully you have checked out his uh, podcast on Doc Talks DX with us. If not, you may be completely lost uh, in just a few minutes. So uh, hopefully you've checked that out. Sebastian, thank you once again for being with us uh, here today. I, I know that it's not always easy to talk about things that have happened in our life, but it seems like you've done a really good job of trying to incorporate this and and get get it to where you use it in a way that benefits other people as well. So we appreciate you for doing that. Thank you once again for being with us here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So if you had listened to the previous podcast, you know that Sebastian uh, dealt with uh, being molested from the age of about seven to about 10 years old and by his best friend's father. Uh, when Sebastian finally uh, came to a point of where it could happen no more, went to his parents, uh, they went to court, the man was arrested, but then he was not found guilty uh, by virtue of a hung jury. And so Sebastian had to live there in the same town with his best friend's dad who uh, had molested him over over a period of time. Now, Sebastian, you said that you had you had no mental health diagnosis as from from this trauma. Is that that right? Yeah, never, never had any diagnosis. Now, did you have to see a therapist before the court trial or have a therapist that uh, testified in court? There was nobody who officially was required to do that, though it would have been so helpful to have a therapist that understands these topics explain to the jury what might be going on in my head and or just like the logistics of how child molestation works. There wasn't any of that. Um, I did see a therapist briefly after the trial, uh, but it wasn't like court mandated or anything. My parents were just like, well, we should probably do this. Unfortunately, the therapist that they recommended, who was apparently a child molestation specialist, was clearly, clearly had never worked with kids before. I remember one of the, uh, it was one of the first times that we had met we would play Uno. Uh, that was the sort of intro game that we would play, you know, from the last episode of you remember, I have a history with games. Uh, and uh, I was one, just I about would, to say that. Isn't yeah. that interesting? <laughs> yeah. How that couldn't works. Pay, couldn't we phrase it a different way? Yeah. So we started playing Uno and I just remember her being like, all right, like the color is now yellow. By the way, what was your least favorite part about getting molested? <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, I mean, haven't had a chance all to of it my- yeah <laughs> yeah thanks a lot barbara it's or, super or cool. you say jokes on you reverse card what That's was what yours I did. <laughs> yeah yes exactly can i uno reverse this fucking conversation barbara like it's outrageous that you think that's an okay thing to ask a 10 year old so i just couldn't believe it and i was like this is just I, and and in retrospect i think what would have really been helpful at that time because I've had therapists reach out to me who have heard this, this story and say, well, what, what would you have wanted to have happen at that point? And I think it would have been so helpful to just have a place where I could not talk about molestation. My entire life up until that point for the last three years had been all about this stuff. I had to go through the trauma of getting molested, but also testifying in court was in many cases more traumatic. And or just, it's just different. But um, I think it would have been so helpful to have a place where I could go to where I know I don't have to talk about this when the whole community is talking about it. You know, I come from a small town, so like everybody knew about this. And it's counterintuitive because you want people to be talking about it and trying to heal and stuff. But at that age, I think that would have been the most beneficial thing for me is just to be able to go to like almost like a safe haven mm-hmm. uh, where I can 
talk. And, and then I think I, something would have come up probably organically uh, if I knew that I, if I could get comfortable and know that I don't have to be talking about it. Right. Um, yeah, it was a pretty awful experience. Well, <laughs> and, it, uh, it sounds like this therapist was using adolescent play therapy, but it would have probably been more conducive had it been, this is a safe place here with an adult. And if you want to talk about it, we can, but you don't have to. Yeah. But we're going to play this game. However, your parents paying for that probably would not have been okay with with that being the treatment plan. But uh, yeah, I certainly, certainly understand where you come from. There are a lot of times where I have clients that, that come and they say, Dot Brian, I just need to sit on your couch. And I say, I've got work to do. If you just want to sit on my couch for 45 minutes, go for it. Yeah. And, you know, they'll be sitting there and then all of a sudden they'll just start talking and organically the therapy begins to, to play out. And, and I find that there is deeper value in that than just sitting here and saying, okay, now let's work through this or, or let's talk about this or try to redirect. And there's just times that we need to know we have a place that is safe, uh, especially as children. Uh, coming through, it's kind of one of those things where, uh, you know, we've always said that respect is earned and not given, but trust is given, but mistrust is earned. And especially as kids, we just naturally trust most people. There was a social experiment. I don't know if you saw this or not, but this man would go to a park and he would find these kids' parents and say, "What do, do you think that if I approached your child that your pr- child would leave the park with me? And they would say, absolutely not. And he said, do you mind if I try? And they was like, well, yeah, because they're not going to leave. Every single child left with this man. Every <laughs> yeah. single child. And we as yeah. parents, I as, I as a parent, I'm going to assume that you're not a parent, uh, yeah. but I as a parent really would want to believe that my child wouldn't do that. But at the end of the day, it's trust, especially with a child, is given and mistrust is earned. And so as a therapist who may be dealing with a child going through this, we have to understand that mistrust has been earned by all of adults because of this one adult's action. And so we've got to earn back that that kind of trust. So, Where were you when I was 10, Doc? I needed you back then. That's right. Couldn't well, agree more. How old are you? I'm 25. Okay. So I was, uh, when you were 10, I would have been um, 20, well, no, I'm 37. What would that be? Um, 20, yeah, I'd be 20, 23, 22. Yeah, 23. Yeah. I was a police officer. That's 22. where I was at. Yeah. Hey, would have would have been better than sixty year old Barbara. Yeah. <laughs> they put you with a sixty year old. I, she was at least sixty. Was some, oh, some, I don't know what she was, but um, yeah, clearly wasn't a therapist. But it wasn't the grandma vibe. <laughs> it was the grandma vibe. It was a big time grandma <laughs> vibe. It was a grandma who had clearly never interacted with her grandkids before. <laughs> but yeah, it was nuts. I I do know a therapist here that uh, works with adolescents that has no maternal instinct. Like her children, uh, her adult children are like, she's the biggest narcissist. Like look up narcissist in the dictionary and you will see her face beside it. And uh, (laughs) I've had some interaction with her and I would agree with that, that observation. So yeah, there are those, those therapists. So, so what was, what was that like um, that having to go through that therapy? Well, I was, I felt like at that point I was kind of numb to discussing it. Like after having talked about it in court, it was like, we weren't talking about anything new. And I just was so uh, tired of talking about it. And so I felt like I never opened up to her and I would just get like clearly like visibly bothered. Like I would just not respond to any of the sort of prying that she was trying to do just because I was so resistant to the way that she approached it. And, um, so it was like, it was like massively ineffective and I only went to her for maybe like five sessions before I just told my parents, I was like, this is not, I don't want to do this anymore. I appreciate the thought. I know what you guys are doing, but this is not it for me. So I did end up going to therapy. Or, well, I, we didn't really talk about it basically at all after that until I started doing standup. And then after I'd been doing standup for about six months, the company that I was working for at the time offered some free therapy sessions. And I went to this therapist in New York who 
I, and at that point, you know, I've been doing stand up about it for a while. I'm like an open book about this stuff. So I went into the first session. I was like, all right, here's what happened to me. You know, like here's just laid it all out. And then like, can you help? Do I need help? And she just couldn't get past the fact that an adult would do this to a child. Like she just kept being like, Oh my God, if somebody did that to my kid, like I would put their balls in acid. Like that's what she just kept saying. And I was like, <laughs> okay, like, I mean, I get it. Like definitely don't want these people to just, you know, walk off, you know, get off scot-free, but like, what are we doing here? You know, like she couldn't, it was weird. Like she, she just couldn't fathom it. And I was like, is this, do you not know that this stuff happens? Like I'm here, you know, now, like, can you help me with something? I mean, I don't even know. And she ended up telling me, I went to her for two sessions and on the second session, she was like, you don't need to be here. Like your stand up is doing more for you right now than I could do. And I was like, okay, well, I mean, hmm. not very helpful, but uh, <laughs> you know, okay, I'll keep doing I, it. You know, I do think that it would be worth mentioning at this point though, that, you really do have to find a therapist that you connect with. I mean, totally. just because yeah. somebody has has a license to do therapy does not mean that they're the best fit for you. What happens, though, which is particularly hard for therapists, is that we kind of realize that before the client does. Mm. And it's very hard to tell a client, especially in your case, who has gone through this significant trauma, yeah. to say, you know, Sebastian, I might not just be the fit for you. Because then <laughs> yeah. you feel like you have failed again. But in what we say is that I think that there are other people who may have a better specialty and understanding with the trauma that you have. Uh, and I think that they could help you better than I can. However, I'm here for you if you want me to continue therapy with you. If not, I can continue therapy until you can get in to see this other person which then I would recommend a person. I wouldn't just say, hey, go find somebody else. I have, I guess you could say fired uh, some some clients because I did marriage counseling. Marriage counseling is very interesting because either the wife is is agreeing with everything you say or the husband is agreeing with everything you say. Not not hardly ever do the husband and wife just team up, team up against the therapist. Yeah. Not too long ago, I had that happen. The husband and the wife started both cussing me during the session. And I was like, bruh, like for real, <laughs> what is going on here? I know that I'm right. And he wanted a divorce. She didn't want a divorce. And she thought I should talk him out of it. And he thought I should talk her into it. And I'm like, it's not my job. It's not my job to talk either. <laughs> you. I'm, I'm here to help you to experience whatever it is that you need to experience and get off, you know, all of this stuff. And so I do think it's important to say, hey, look, not just because somebody is a therapist doesn't mean that they're the therapist that you should go to. And I, I kind of explain it this way. When you go to a new restaurant, um, you decide, do I like this or not? And sometimes it is very evident. No, I do not like this place. I'm not going back. Or you may go back again and try something different. And it's the same way when you're looking for a therapist, you may need to go two or three sessions and then say, hey, this really isn't working for me. And as a therapist, we get that. We understand that. We, we're not hurt by that. Uh, and so that, that really is, is important. Uh, but as yeah, you're, maybe, maybe you save the marriage though, who knows, <laughs> maybe unintentionally might've been the perfect therapy for him. <laughs> well, see, here's the thing. He, uh, they bought a new house and he knew he was going to divorce her, but he waited until they bought in the new house to have more marital equity so that he wouldn't come out in the hole. And like, he, he told me this whole plan. I mean, he had, and she screwed it up. I mean, she screwed it all up. And so then he was like, I'm going to come out with all this debt and da, 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 da. And, and I was just like, dude, you know, this is what happens when you try to make this plan to screw somebody over. It's going to end up screwing you over in the long run. Yeah. But we're not here to talk about them. Um, we're, <laughs> we're here to talk about you. So, um, so it is, but it is true that probably that therapist was right, that you were dealing with this and coping with this much better by way of, of comedy than, than what therapy could offer. The question would have been though, is what happens if this comedy career suddenly ends and you no mm. longer have that outlet? That's been uh, sort of what happened with COVID in, in some ways. You know, the live aspect of, of comedy has been on hold. But what I kind of realized is that it wasn't 
I don't think it's so much comedy. I mean, obviously, that's a huge part of it. Laughing about these things makes you feel sort of invincible with them. It feels like you're taking the power back. But at the same time, I think it's just more so just talking about it in any capacity, really. Fortunately, with comedy, you know, you, you, you get to get up there for five minutes and people can't, you know, I guess they could leave, but you basically get them locked in and they have to listen to you. So it's sort of like therapy. Who's going to get up and leave a comedy routine where this comic is pouring out his heart about being molested (laughs) as a child? Like there's almost a certain conviction that you're going to have to, well, I have to stay here. I mean, I don't want to be the jerk that leaves while this guy's pouring out his heart. Of course. Yeah. But that was sort of what I realized through quarantine is that I feel similar feelings making TikToks about molestation that I do doing stand-up about it. So I think it's just having the conversations and each conversation, you just feel more comfortable doing it. And I feel like over time, it just gets to the point where it's just another conversation to have. And it no longer is this thing that really burdens you when you bring it up. And comedy just happens to be a way that I think can kind of expedite that process. There's a quote from Wayne Dyer who says, like, it's impossible to be afraid and laugh at the same time. So when you're laughing about this thing that has always made you afraid and uncomfortable and angry and scared, all these other emotions, all of a sudden you're laughing at it and you're like, oh, my God, like, this is a super freeing feeling. So, yeah, I was very fortunate to have discovered that pretty early uh, Mm -hmm. in life. And, um, but I'm not opposed to therapy by any means. I definitely, uh, would be open to the idea of, of, of going back and trying to find a therapist that would work out, not even necessarily just for molestation, but like all things in life, I think it could definitely be helpful. Yeah. And I, and I say, and, and I don't say this because I'm a therapist, uh, but I do think, you know, we have annual physicals with our doctor to have, well, you're supposed to have an annual physical with your doctor to check right. levels and uh, as a preventative to other disease or illness. But I do think that it's a good idea for us to just have a mental health checkup every year, yeah. you know, yeah. but uh, things could be happening that we just don't even realize that are happening, but there's still su- such a stigma around, around mental health that, uh, that happens. I have had a lot of actors, writers, comics on on my podcast and and i'm sure as you you are aware that comedians are inherently depressed chronically (laughs) yeah Um, and their their projection of comedy is their their medicine that helps them to to cope especially you know starting out as a comedian you could have uh, a show and then not have another show for three weeks a month and, and now with COVID and quarantine, uh, you may not have a, a show for, for months. Or, uh, and, and I can speak to this as a therapist, it's not the same doing therapy by telemed. I don't think that therapy is as good uh, by telemed because, one, they're not always in a place where they feel like they can speak freely because there might be family in another room. They're not always in a, you know, the lag time between, uh, cause you can't do telemedicine by zoom. You have to use an actual software because of HIPAA, you know, you can't, somebody you just can't show up in your, you know, in your zoom. And so there's a little bit of a lag time there based on somebody's internet connection. And so I could imagine that it would be the same way doing a show that's not live and in person. <laughs> yeah, Zoom Zoom comedy is the worst because you don't know if you're bombing or if you're just lagging, right? Uh-huh, and you right. already have to like allot time for, to allow people to laugh. Uh-huh. So if people aren't laughing and you're trying to figure out, is this joke bad or is my Wi-Fi shitty? You know, right. so it's like it compounds the bomb in many right. ways. I was on a podcast with a comedian. His name was uh, Jason Salmon, uh, just like the fish, Salmon. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's called Jason's Failed Podcast. And it it really did fail because the Zoom connection lost like 30 times with him. And uh, But it, we made yeah. a joke about it because it is the failed podcast. But right. prior to that podcast, he did a comedy bit for nursing home patients by telephone. And he was like, they have me on speakerphone and they're all in this room. And I'm going, that just does not sound appealing at all. Like, <laughs> I would not want to do that. And he was like, 
150 bucks, 150 bucks, got to do what I got to do. And I was like, man, I just, you know, I, I couldn't imagine, especially if that is your coping mechanism yeah, to get rid of whatever may be going on in your life. It's also like about a three or 30 million TikTok views to make that kind of money. So it's probably <laughs> not a bad call. <laughs> yeah, not a bad call. Someone in your situation where there was uh, trauma over extended period of time, there are certain stressors that, that would come into play. And the very first thing we would think about would be uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Within PTSD, there is another subtype of complex PTSD, or also known as C, PTSD, where the C is little and then PTSD is, is capitalized. And basically, the difference is that CPTSD is a stressor or trauma that happened over a period of time. That stressor or trauma has caused multiple mental diagnosis, whether it be depression, along with anxiety, uh, panic attacks, those sort of things that has all come together. Did you at any point, uh, I'll, I'll tell it this, I have a really good friend. I was, I told you, I was a police officer. Uh, my partner and I were in a line of duty accident where my partner was killed. Um, and I was shot. I had to take the man's life, had PTSD from that for, for years. Uh, well, you still have it. You don't ever get rid of it, but you learn to cope and move through it. And so I'm a very, I don't say touchy feely, but I, you know, if I tell you, I love you, I'm going to touch you when I tell you that I love you. Yeah. And, and it's very easy for me to say, Hey man, I love you because I don't, this could be the last time I ever talked to you before. And I want you to know that you're loved and that you're valued and you're important and you're needed and you're wanted and all of those kind of things. And so one of the first times we met, uh, we met in church and we had this really good conversation and, uh, he'd come by my office, not as a client, but just, you know, wanting to talk. I said, you know, and I touched him on his shoulder. And when I touched him, he just jerked away and backed up. I was like, well, that's weird. And I said, I just want you to know that I love you. And he said, he, and I quote, he said, stop that bullshit with me. I'm not, I'm not gay. I was like, whoa, (laughs) whoa. Well, over time, what I found was that he had been raped by his stepfather Mm. from the time he was eight years old to like 14 years old, like full on anal rape. And, and so any male touching him, any male affection was a trigger for him. Yeah. And did you ever, while yours was just a touching molestation, did you ever have any time where if anybody touched you for any reason that you kind of pulled away or even went back to that mind space of, of that trauma? I think part of, and this is probably part of why I'm able to do stand up about it or why I was initially. I, I think that because I didn't experience as severe molestation in terms of the spectrum of things that can happen to you, I don't think that I, I, I don't recall any experiences like that where I was, it put me in like a flashback mentality and, and made me think about the molestation because it was never, it was never painful. It was never uh, scary. I think it like, it was just sort of in many ways, it was like a, it's kind of a peaceful molestation, you know, it wasn't like it was, it's not that it's less traumatic, but I think that it, um, it affects you differently. And so I don't, honestly, from the moment that I spoke up, I did feel fairly free from it. I, I do think that it's probably a product of it just not being super severe. Um, and it's not diminishing, you know, anybody who's been through something similar at all. Uh, these are things affect everybody differently. But um, I never had experiences like that, whether it was affection towards me, or when I did when I did become sexually active later in life, I don't have triggers that happen to me during sex or things that are related. If people touch my dick in the same way that this guy did, it doesn't really bring back any sort of memories. In that way, I'm very lucky, I guess. But I, I, uh, I don't know, honestly. I, I just can't think of any particular instances like that. I have dealt with um, depression and anxiety later in life. It was actually when I moved out to L.A. after living in New York. I'd been doing stand-up for a year, and I uh, quit my corporate job and moved out and was living with my grandfather. And um, he just, you know, he was sick. He had cancer, and I got to spend the last year of his life with him. And 
when he passed away, uh, I just sort of fell into this depressive episode where, you know, I would just, I, I felt like I couldn't make decisions. Like small decisions became like these absolutely impossible things to, to make up my mind about. And um, I was sleeping just so much of the time. And I, uh, I, yeah, I just felt like pretty debilitating. Like I just became very emotional and it affected me, honestly, what felt like way more significantly than any of the molestation. Uh, you know, I had never really had somebody very close to me die. I mean, my roommate died, basically. So it was like, you know, I, I just hadn't had that experience. And I didn't really know how to cope with it. And um, funnily enough, I, so I, that was actually when I ended up going on the meditation retreat. And I, after about six months of dealing with that, it was uh, a couple of months after he passed, that's when I sort of really started feeling these emotions. I've been meditating like most of my life, actually, even when I was getting molested, I was I my dad has been meditating a long time. And he got me into it very early, but I wasn't taking it very seriously. Until around that time, when I started going on these meditation retreats, which was basically just a 10 day silent retreat where you're meditating between four and 12 hours a day. And um, it really pulled me out of that mindset of what felt like just excessive negative thoughts, really just compound every thought, like I would wake up in the morning, and the first thing I would think about is just inadequacy, uh, which is a weird thing to be triggered from death of a loved one. But at the same time, it's just just how I felt. And going on these meditation retreats, it felt like it gave me a different outlook on these thoughts and the reality of them, which is that it's not who we are. You know, we're this being that's able to operate completely independently of the thoughts that are coming into our head all the time. And it allowed me to disassociate with from them and actually like embrace them and acknowledge when a negative thought pops into my head, like I have the complete ability to let that go. And I don't know, it really did sort of change my outlook on it and, and sort of pulled me out of that repetition of negative thoughts that I think was causing the depression and anxiety. Ever since then, yeah, I've been meditating about just over an hour a day for you know probably over a year and a half now. It really has made all the difference uh, in in term, and it, you know I'm sure there are all sorts of things that can work for anxiety and depression, but for me personally, it it, it really did uh, help immensely, and it got to the point where I you know <laughs> traditionally channeled it into comedy. Eventually, I do a lot of material on my grandpa and uh, what that experience was like for me and stuff. So. Yeah, man, it was, a, it was a pretty wild experience, but um, I'm trying to think of how I got here. <laughs> you were asking me about well, uh, uh, PTSD from touching uh, from yeah. the molestation, and I just completely transitioned. Well, that's that's fine. <laughs> um, I, I wonder, though, have you ever heard the term delayed trauma uh, experience? No, but I can definitely infer uh, what it would be, and it's very possible that uh, that is what set off the delayed molestation trauma. Right. So especially at young age, we can kind of package our trauma away and forget certain details about it. But then when another traumatic life event takes place, such as the passing of your grandfather, you project those former things that you have not dealt with but your psyche or your subconscious want to believe that it's actually due to the current trauma. Mm. If I were your therapist over, you know, a couple of sessions, I could figure out if that's what is going on here. I, I, I can only assume uh, at this point, but because you said of the feeling of inadequacy uh, leads me to think that it would be that way because you probably never felt like you were in, inadequate with your grandfather. Yeah. Not at all. <laughs> You're totally right. It's triggering other emotions that are quite unrelated to him dying. Yeah. you're mm -hmm. uh, Nice. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, within that, that could be a, a conception of complex PTSD. You know, how we deal with those things is absolutely meditation can be a coping mechanism just as much as going through therapy and unpacking it. You know, you, you said you found it uh, compelling to just be able to stand on stage and talk about it, you know, and make, make jokes of it. Well, all therapy really is, is talking about it, you know, and having it from somebody else's viewpoint, uh, as to what you're saying and trying to help you to process that emotion, because 90%, I, in my opinion, 90% of any, 
any mental health is just processing the emotion healthy uh, in a healthy nature. And so we have these things that take place and we can't process that emotion. Even within, you know, the the spectrum of of bipolar disorder, it's all about processing the emotion. Well, in bipolar, it's your brain chemicals not allowing you to. So you have to manually, if you will, process those emotions uh, by using, uh, you know, serotonin meds or, or you know, other antidepressants uh, to kind of give you a level there. Uh, so that you can go into therapy and learn coping mechanisms. And so you, you mentioned that you slept a lot. Did you sleep more than like 12 hours a day? Sometimes, yeah. Okay. It's interesting that you slept a lot instead of staying awake a lot because the the delayed trauma response would have been the opposite of what the trauma would have been of where you were awakened early. So, so the response then would be sleeping more, uh, because while your body, your subconscious is telling you that while you were sleeping, you're safe. It was when you woke up, when you woke up is when everything went south. Right. Um, and that, that wasn't trying to be funny there either. Uh, no, but, not at but, all. It's, but you it, can use that. You can use that yeah. in your comedy routine. And yeah, that's when yeah. it all went south. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it's it's interesting in how that the only time that somebody's personality changes um, is during a major traumatic life event. And we're value processed uh, between the ages of seven and 14. That's where we learn our intrinsic value. And so all of that would come to fruition at a major traumatic life event, such as the passing of a grandparent. Um, so I do find it interesting that, that that took place. Now, what comfort do you get out of meditation? You get a lot of comfort in many different ways. I think that the biggest thing is being able to sit with whatever thoughts you have and not feeling like you need them to go away. I think that a lot of my anxiety came from having thoughts and feeling like I just couldn't stop thinking about them. And it's almost like an embracing of whatever emotion you're feeling and an acceptance. And when your perspective changes on thoughts and emotions from feeling like it's something that you really don't want to be experiencing to something that is, is, is happening and, and, and you just allow it, it, like that was the whole thing with the meditation retreat that I was on. The technique is called Vipassana meditation. And it's basically just noticing the impermanence of everything. Every thought, no matter how awful it is, will eventually pass. And your willingness to allow it to be is, is what determines how long it lasts for. And when you're fighting it and wanting it to not be there, that's what makes your whole experience so awful it's not that I don't have these thoughts anymore. It's just that my perspective on them is different and I don't feel the need for them to be out of my experience right away. And you can control them to some point. To some point. Yes. And, and also just, I think you just catch it earlier and earlier. You, you catch yourself on mind patterns, like habitual thoughts that you're having over and over again, you catch them more quickly. And Eventually, and I, I still, you know, struggle with all of that, of course. But I think it, the the time that it takes you to catch the the negative train of thought gets shorter and shorter to the point where eventually you just don't have them because you are you have almost trained yourself to just be aware of it all. And eventually, it's like you know, I've had moments where it feels like there's no thoughts going on, and what exists there is just like a total sense of uh, peace and like alignment with everything. And it really. Uh, it really feels good. And, and I mean, it's the same way within therapy is that you learn these coping mechanisms that you kind of can slow down time and really, you know, in that moment, experience the emotions that you're having, whether it be through a grounding technique or through tapping or music therapy or whatever the situation may be that works for you is to really just stop and to experience that emotion in the moment because the sooner you deal with that emotion, the sooner it's going to be over. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I want to say that with any mental health diagnosis, there is no cure. Um, the remission is the best that we could hope for. So even in your case, you know, if you had another major traumatic life event, it could turn your world upside down again. And so we've got to make sure that we 
understand that just like if we were a diabetic, we would have to take insulin every day. And even if we got our A1C down to where it needed to be, we're still going to have to take insulin. Uh, and it's the same way with mental health. We can get to a healthy spot, but it's always going to be there. It's always going to be something that we have to be mindful of and that we are taking care of. I applaud you for being able to do that on your own uh, and through meditation and, and that sort of thing. Thank you, man. Kind of uh, puts me out of a job, but, you know, <laughs> do you, I guess, uh, is what I would say. Yeah. <laughs> if it works, it works. Um, meditation. No, I mean, honestly, even just feeling it just have our, this whole experience that this podcast has been alone is, is like it's so helpful. You know, I mean, I. I I just think that it's it is different for everybody, but just because you know you have something like meditation that works doesn't mean you can't benefit from other things like therapy. I mean, ideally, you just find the balance between all of them, and and you'll find a sweet spot. And yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I don't know. It's it's definitely not uh, bashing any other sort of resources that people use. Um, it's just another alternative that that can be really helpful for some people. Absolutely, uh, meditation would never work for me because I have severe ADHD, and I would not uh -huh. be able to sit there and meditate on any one thing for any period of time because I just constantly have a, this playlist of emotions go through my brain. And, and you know, that's, a, that's another thing that people deal with, uh, you know, people that have traumatic experiences that do have like ADHD or ADD is you're taking a depressant to help with the depression to slow everything down, but then you're taking a stimulant to keep your brain in order so that you can concentrate. And there's, you know, there's a fine balance there. So multiple things uh, we do have to say, okay, I have to do this for this issue, but I have to do this for that issue in the same way that if you had hypertension and diabetes, you couldn't just take insulin and control your hypertension. You know, you have to do multiple things to find what works for you. And it, and it certainly seems like uh, you have found what works for you. It sounds like that you're in a healthy spot, and that's that's great. It, I'm glad that you are able to look at this in the way that you aren't the victim. You're the survivor. Yeah, man. And I think that a lot of times we stay in that victim mentality too long. When people say to me, um, Doc Brian, I'm not going to live through this. There's just no way I can get through this. I remind them that they have gotten through everything up to this point. Yeah. And if they take everything they've been through, everything they've been through is a lot worse than what we're facing today. And if you got through all of that alive, you're probably going to get through all of this alive. <laughs> it's amazing how little credit we give ourselves. Absolutely. And, and how we can get totally wrapped up in what's happening right now and lose sight of all the amazing things that we have recovered from. And, and just as you said, the, the, the amount of, of courage and willpower that it took to get to the point that you're at is, is uh, incredible. And most of us don't really recognize that within ourselves. And I would also say that probably in the same way that people who say, oh, I could never do therapy maybe need therapy the most. I feel similarly about people who say that they could never do meditation for whatever, whatever reason it may be. You know, oftentimes the people that say that are like, my mind just races too much. It's like, oh, well, that's, you're the perfect candidate because <laughs> you'll benefit from it tremendously, even, you know, five minutes a day or whatever it may be. I think that it just can be beneficial. You know, it's definitely not required to do an hour a day, but I think having some sort of, time in your day. And you know, it's also meditation is not restricted to sitting down with your eyes closed, it can be walking meditation, any, any time where you're just willing to observe your thoughts and and not just be in your head in your mental sort of constructed reality and out of touch with what's happening around you. I mean, you could just look around at stuff for five minutes and that would be meditation, you know, but I would definitely well, then just I meditate all the time. Cause I'm there just, you go. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Squirrel <laughs> comes by I'm meditating on the squirrel and what the yes. squirrel may be doing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But then, you know, there is the opposite uh, end of the spectrum where when I was a police officer where I worked, there's a, a drawbridge that came into town and it was the main thoroughfare to get into the town. And uh, we would routinely have people to jump off the bridge. I remember one day there was this man out there uh, who was going to jump and he had chosen to jump very early in the morning. Uh, he had traffic backed up miles. Uh, so obviously we're not going to let people cross the bridge while we've got a man 
out there. <laughs> yeah. uh, and the death rate of jumping off that bridge was like 99.9999%. I mean, it was just a fatal blow. And I remember uh, the last time I was ever allowed to go to a jumping incident, I walked up to the man and used a very uh, child psychologist type of thing. And I said, look, man, you've backed up traffic for the last two hours, either jump or get down. <laughs> and he jumped <laughs> and, uh, and he survived. And, oh my God. And I remember thinking, and, and, you know, it's funny now, but it wasn't funny at the time thinking, how horrible would it be that you thought you were such a failure in life that you wanted to kill yourself and couldn't even be successful <laughs> in doing that. Right, uh, right. As I said, I was never allowed to go to another suicide uh, call. Uh, and, <laughs> just and, do it. Yeah, just do, do it. it. Just get it over with. You know, just it, it's kind of like the TikTok of where uh, the guy says, hey, isn't that your ex-girlfriend up there about to jump? And they go, oh, my God, yeah, hang on just a second. And he, he says, do a backflip. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> do a backflip. Yeah. So, but we can, you know, over the period of time of years, get to a point of where we are so depressed that due to trauma that we did not deserve, we get into a negative headspace of where the only way that we can make it stop is to end our life. And I have never counseled with somebody who had attempted suicide but said, I wanted to die. Mm. What they have always said to me was, there wasn't any other way that I could make it stop. I, I can tell you, and I'm sure Sebastian can tell you as well, there are other ways. You just got to hang on, live another day, one day at a time, get help. There is no shame in going to a hospital or going to a friend or going to a doctor and saying, the only way that I think I can make this stop is to kill myself. There is no shame in admitting that. And I actually think you're a stronger person by being able to admit that. Oh, totally. In the same way that if you had uh, pedophilic ideologies, for you to go to a doctor and say, or a therapist and say, I have these ideals and these thoughts and I don't think they're normal. I think you're a bigger person for being able to do that. Oh, a hundred percent, man. You're a hero. Yeah. I mean, like you're, you're, you're helping people by and helping yourself at the same time. You know, there's so many feelings of shame associated with these types of things, whether it's suicide or molestation, whatever you experience. And the reality is when we're going through, through these things, it feels like you're the only one that knows what it feels like. And that's what I've discovered through TikTok and, you know, doing standup is that not only are there people that know exactly how you feel, but there are an unfathomable number of people that have been through exactly what you went through. I mean, they, to a T, you know, and can not only empathize with you, but like provide you with the resources that you need to get, make yourself better. You should just know that you're not alone in any, whatever your experience is. And, um, it just comes to turn. You just need to come to terms with like accepting what's happened to you and not feeling like you can't express the experience and talk about the experiences that you've had for whatever reason. Shame is oftentimes the main reason. But um, I know from my experience, it was something that was the most shameful thing that happened to me. And especially at the time, I felt so much shame around it, around discussing it. And now I can't stop talking about it. So you can, you can definitely get to a point where it not only doesn't hinder you anymore, but can feel like it becomes almost like a superpower. And you can like alleviate your own problems and stress and worries and, and help other people along the way too. I'm sure that you've experienced, as I know that I have, when I tell my story, there's always that one person that comes up and says, I've gone through something much like you have but I wish that I were able to tell it like you tell it. And and that to me is one of the most fulfilling moments to know that my trauma has allowed someone else to know that they're not alone Yeah, and has helped them in this moment. It's the best feeling in the world. And in a way, in a very sick way, it almost makes us glad that we went through that trauma <laughs> to be able to, to be able to help other people. You know, dude, uh, if I didn't, if I hadn't been molested, I'd still be working my corporate job right. in New York, hating my life, dude. Yeah, I could, <laughs> totally, like a hundred percent. 
Yeah. I just couldn't so, agree more. So uh, I'll, I'll end this podcast just telling you a quote that I say a lot, and then you can, you can respond to it however this hits you. Whatever happens in life, we need to remember that however we feel, it's okay to feel that way. Just don't unpack and live there. Yes. And, and oh, totally, man. And recognizing that however you feel is like, it's okay. You don't have to force yourself to feel differently. And I feel like the, the first step in healing is acknowledging the authentic feelings that you have. How do you really feel about the experience that you've had and not feeling like you need to suppress any emotions associated with it? And as you begin to let yourself feel those feelings, it just becomes easier and easier to, to process what happened to you. And you get to a point, I mean, it's an ongoing thing, you know, I'm still healing, I'm by no means done, but it does get easier. And, you know, I've had people reach out to me who have been like, hey, I was going to kill, I had somebody who reached out who was like, I was going to kill myself literally today. And then I saw your, your TikTok and listened to your podcast, and I'm going to give life another shot now. And I'm like, the fact that you can, and, and anytime you can just provide, so it doesn't have to be that, that extreme, right? But just that feeling of healing yourself and, he, and seeing other people benefit from the healing that you've done. It's just, it's so empowering and it makes you, it does feel like you said that you're almost glad that you went through it and it does feel like, you know, purposeful, feels like you have a meaning and, uh, it's really invaluable. And, um, yeah, man, I I think that's a great quote. Who said that? I did. That's my quote. Oh, you legend. That's my quote. Legend. Yeah. Uh, you can find it in a psychology today interview that I did back in like 2009, 10, somewhere in there. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's my quote. I do want to end on, I said that I was going to end on that note, but I'm not going to. So one of the last TikToks that I saw of yours, where you were walking out of a grocery store and you have seen the man recently, I guess, within the last couple of days, <laughs> yeah. uh, you saw the man in the grocery store that uh, had molested you. And you said for the first time you saw him and didn't experience the emotion of fear or anxiety, yeah. that it was almost a liberating feeling. Yeah. How did that, I'm going to, the cliche therapist line, how did that make you feel? <laughs> So I've always run into him at various different things, whether it was the soccer games or, you know, coming on and off the ferry. Again, I'm from a Bainbridge Island close to Seattle. And so we'd see him in the ferry terminal and things like that. And whenever I'd see him, it was always just like, it just made my heart race for various different feelings for different reasons. And even though I'm at the point now where like, of course I could like, you know, beat the shit out of this guy. Right. But it doesn't, it still brings you back to, the childlike mindset and all these past feelings that you've had. This is the first time I've seen him in in years. And it's after having done all of this stand-up about him. And I just felt totally at ease with his existence. I didn't feel like worried that I was going to be affected. I knew that there was nothing that he could do to me now. And it just felt so good to not be harboring any of those feelings anymore. And I don't know, man, it just like felt amazing, basically. <laughs> and it almost made me look forward to seeing him again in the future. <laughs> do, do you ever think that you could get to a point to where you would go to him and say, I forgive you for what you did to me? I think if he'd be willing to come on my podcast, I'd be down to do that. But I, I, I think that there's, I think that, the, no, in, in all seriousness, I, I do think that there's a, a massive amount of value in forgiving your abuser. And it's not for everybody. You know, I've talked to people that are, you know, dedicating their lives to making sure that they suffer. And I co- completely understand that. But I think for me, in my personal experience, letting go is in many ways, the most powerful thing that that I can do. I don't think that I need to talk to him in order to feel the way that I've been feeling. I think that it could help, you know, I'm not opposed to it at all. I don't think he would ever want to talk to me about it, especially now that I'm publicly talking about it. I'm sure the statute of limitations has, has been way exceeded. It Uh, actually hasn't. Apparently, apparently it's, I think either 15 or 20 years. And I was actually, it's funny you bring that up because I was thinking about, because we didn't try him civilly, we only tried him criminally. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about if I could find a way to, I mean, literally represent myself 
going back into the courtroom, the weight with the mentality that I have now and like the understanding and almost make it not comedic, but like in a way pointing things out that are just, just the absurdity of it all and using it as like an educational thing and like trying to explain to people like the process and how all of these things work, what you can expect. Um, and then also, I mean, obviously it's a lot easier to get a conviction in civil trials than criminal trials. So you could probably get some money out of it too. But and with him being an attorney, he probably has some money. He does. Yes. Yes, exactly. So it's something I've been thinking about in the back of my mind. It's sort of a far-fetched idea, but um, yeah, we'll see what happens. I've got, I've got about five years to figure it out. Maybe call Dateline or 2020 and get them to uh, hook you up with a pro bono attorney. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sebastian, once again, thank you for being with us on a podcast on Doc Talks and here on Doc Talks DX. And uh, I, I appreciate your willingness to share your story, even though you feel like you share it all the time, that, that sharing it in this way is quite a vulnerable experience uh, to be able to to bring it out in this way. Uh, tell our listeners once again where they could find you. Yeah, my podcast is called What Happened to You with Sebastian Scales. It's available on all podcasting platforms and videos are up on YouTube. Uh, you can find my YouTube account, TikTok and Instagram all at Sebastian Scales. So feel free to, to check me out there. And yeah, thank you so much for having me, Brian. This I love the whole environment that you've created here and it really makes people like myself, your guests feel like you can be vulnerable. And, and just, uh, I, I think you have an amazing perspective on all of this kind of stuff. And I learned a lot in both of these, both of these recordings with you. And, uh, I just really appreciate you having me on and I look forward to, you know, speaking with you again in the future. Yeah. And if you sue the guy, you're definitely coming back for another podcast. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> maybe I could reach out to him and see if he wants to tell his side of the story. Because who knows, be he could have been molested as a child and and felt like yeah. it was a natural part of transitioning out of childhood into adolescence or or preteen. So he might have thought he was doing me a favor. Absolutely, he might you never have. know. You, well, that is true. We never know, and we probably don't want to know. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. I'm Doc Brian. You can find me at the.brian.com on TikTok, Doc underscore Brian, Instagram, Doc, or excuse me, the underscore Doc underscore Brian. Of course, there's a link at the bottom of my website for all of my social media at thedocbrian.com. So feel free to follow us on all of our social medias. Uh, be sure to follow Doc Talks on all streaming platforms. We thank you for listening today at Doc Talks DX here on Patreon. And be sure to subscribe to everything that we have. Uh, Doc Talks is a part of Be Frank Network. Uh, you can find all of our podcasts at befranknetwork.com. And I invite you to do that. Have some wonderful podcasts. And I look forward to having you join us next time. Again, thank you for listening and have a great day. Goodbye.